I don't have a gold toilet. I lied to you. <laughs> I'm stupid. Everything I've known is a lie now. <laughs> Unless there's any more housekeeping or jokes about dogs that we would like to it's talk about. It's not a joke. It's a fact. I don't know what you're... <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm ready. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. So Joey, you know why you can't hear a pterodactyl in the bathroom? I already know the punchline to this one, but yes, the go is silent. on that. There <laughs> it is. The, the P is silent. The P is silent. Do you get it, Joey? I get it. Do you yes, get it? I get it. Okay. I feel like I'm back in my kindergarten class where I first heard that joke. It's a wonderful wave of nostalgia. Thank you for that, Matt. I'm glad you heard it last year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was deft. I like that. Uh, next to the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. Man, it's such a tough thing to top when Matt drops those fantastic dad jokes like that. My brain has been battered, splattered all over Manhattan. Well played, Matt. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah, really, really solid introduction to the show, guys. <laughs> and I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. Ladies and gents, we've got another guest on the show this week. Please welcome Mark Nestico. Um, it's... It's uh, spelled P M A R K. The P is the P is silent, guys. Do you I like get it. it. The P is silent. Do you get it, Matt? Do you? Oh, I got it. Don't you worry? Because the P is silent. Mark, thanks so much for coming onto the show. We're really happy to have you. Oh, this is awesome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me today. So, for some of the folks who don't know who you is, do you mind walking us through who you is? Okay, who I is. For about almost a year, I wrote for TCGplayer.com and afterwards was recruited to Star City Games in 2013, where I wrote for them for five years. I did the Why Your Deck Sucks series, which metrically, I don't know if anybody's ever touched me on that website when it came to clicks and downloads and everything. So I basically wrote like BuzzFeed clickbait in Magic, but uh, I had a ton of fun doing it, and I got to make a lot of a lot of nerds really, really angry. So that's sort of like why I'm I'm known. The, the comment section always was just delightful. It was unreal. I had death threats. People threatened to beat me up at GPs and SEG opens. Uh, you know, one guy was like, "I'm going on vacation down to Naples, Florida, and I'm going to go to every store. And if I run into you, and I was like, okay, but like sounds good." Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it, I don't like to call it the wild, wild west, but it, you know, it was definitely a Will Smith song because this is sort of before SCG took on like the, we want to be family friendly PG content. And, uh, they gave me a lot of free reign to be as just as wacky as I wanted to be. So it was a really good time. So that is, uh, who I am. Right. And that's definitely a tone from a lot of the articles. You do have a bit of a satirical bend to your writing. Yes. Uh, I wrote a modern proposal back in 2015. It was one of the most, if not the most read article of the year on the website. And uh, it was just basically like a take on a modest proposal, but from a modern perspective and something like 500 comments, people had no idea what I was talking about or they were in on the joke. So 
it was a lot of like, stop complaining, stop whining about modern, stop, it's my favorite format. And other people were like, Do, have any of you ever read a book in your life? So I love the satire and I love sort of just throwing curveballs at people when they're trying to read strategy content. And instead I hit them over the head with something stupid. <laughs> That's pretty great. And Matt, Dana, you guys have been following Mark for a while, I think. I have actually. Mark was one of the reasons I wanted to start making content just because I enjoyed his low key. I'm making fun of your deck, even though I'm not really because it's just a good deck and I'm talking about it type articles. But yeah, I, I followed Mark's writing for a long time. Um, Matt got me following Mark on Twitter. But then at some point, I remember specifically, Mark ret- retweeted something from Dave Anthony, who's a comedian I'm a huge fan of. I'm like, oh, okay, well, now i got to pay attention to this guy because if he actually retweeted Dave Anthony, he must have a pretty good sense of humor. That's kind of what hooked me in. Well, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Mark, Mark earned his way into my heart when we started talking about retro wave music all the time, even though his, his bands that he prefers are a little subpar, but we'll forgive him. That's cool. I mean, I'll fight you. <laughs> like, I'll see you at the next GP, buddy. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Right, well, yeah, looking over some of the articles that you've written, I do really appreciate, you know, the the take that you have on a lot of this because behind the satire, there's actually quite a lot of, you know, really good advice hiding in there. Uh, an article that stands out to me is the play the thing or you're wrong, which is taking a look at the attitude that a lot of players have about, oh, you should play this because it's the best in this format right now. Oh, this is the best deck in standard at the moment, etc. And then you're taking a look at that and saying, hey, maybe this attitude is damaging and bad. And I just I appreciate that because that's one of the best things about EDH in particular. You should play what you're passionate about. You should play what's the most fun. Uh, yeah. The the thing that struck me most about that article was a having to the entire time not actually reference anything. And a lot of people sort of projected onto that what they were sort of used to in their playgroups or what they had been saying themselves. And it sort of created like this weird dichotomy where the people were half of them were like, Oh, this is, you know, this is just stupid. And then the other half were like, Oh my God, this attitude is such a detriment uh, to magic. And it is so, so prevalent in the EDH community. Like if you're the kind of person that doesn't play Sol Ring, how many times would one of your opponents or a friend go, Oh, that's the, you're not playing Sol Ring. That's you. That's very ignorant. It's the best card in the format. And it just, it kind of just takes away from that creativity in, in deck building or in, uh, you know, commander, which is really an expression of your, your individuality and yourself. So is that what drew you to the commander format instead of competitive play? Because you do have a couple of tournament accolades to your name too. Uh, yeah, I am a Florida regional and state champion. I top eight a bunch of PTQs. I've played in uh, some pro tours and, you know, I teamed with guys like Brad Nelson and Seth Manfield and Steve Rubin, guys who have won, you know, pro tours themselves. And, but what brought me into commander was Florida, you know, uh, Sheldon Mennery and Armada games, sort of like one of the, the cradles. It's like the, you know, the Mesopotamia of commander and, I knew some friends that were going to Tampa for a few days and they were like, Oh, we're all bringing our EDH decks. You know, are you going to bring yours? I didn't have one. So I got into it. And then from that point on, from about 2010 to now, I was just like sucked in and absolutely enamored with the, just the out, just the complete creativity, but also how interesting the format was back then, at least when anything went, you know, basically with who your commander could be. Back then, not now? 
I, th- I think now decks are a little bit more homogenized in the sense that there are a lot of cards that people include in their decks that, you know, quote unquote, are must plays. And the commander scope to me, like the the power creep has gotten so high that you look at sort of like on, on the um, on the website, the top played commanders are all things that have come out within the last five, six years. And we're not looking back on things like Nath, which, you know, used to be an insane powerhouse or even in the Boris colors like uh, what's his name? Uh, Bronze Stoutarm that used to be a great commander, but now it's sort of way by the wayside in favor of things like Aurelia or, um, you know, uh, Gisela. So I, I wouldn't say that it's as you're not as able to bring a deck to a quote, you know, like a semi-competitive pot or a something like that without getting like hammered by the person playing Damia or the person playing, you know, Teferi. So I think in casual senses, it's, it's, you know, anything goes, but in the more story-oriented LGS environment, I think that's a little bit harder than it used to be. Dana, Matt, I think you guys play at stores more often than I do. Has that been your experience as well? It depends on the playgroup. So in since I moved to Colorado, it depends on the store. So there's a couple stores here that they're super casual. And so it, it's nice because you can play almost whatever you want, like Mark was saying. But then there's somewhere, there's two or three people that just, they're min-maxers, they have full set of duels in their three and four color decks. Like they have everything very tuned, like CEDH level, but they're playing with people who, you know, they just want to play and they're playing a bunch of bad cards, quote unquote. So it just depends. I think depends on the culture that, that a certain store is built up, but I've seen, I have seen both, both sides of that coin. Um, I will say this. I started playing commander pretty heavily in return to Ravnica block ish. And I would say especially back then the conversation is my deck too strong for this pod wasn't one you had like there there wasn't concerns about overpowering a deck for the most part there were some commanders that were viewed as really really strong but like the notion that your deck could be too powerful the people you're playing with wasn't really a notion people had because the format was just so immature whereas that's a real conversation that people have in the reg today in a way that they just didn't. So I think that's definitely true in that people have just gotten better at deck building, if nothing else, and that's changed how the power balance and or imbalance is at shops. I think that's a really good really good observation because, yeah, like you said, back when I first started playing Commander in Theros blocks, so not too long after it was, sure, like, your buddy had a deck that, oh man, this deck is so good. Like it's so hard to beat, but it wasn't, you know, if that same deck and same situation came up today, the conversation would be very different. Now, now I will say this though, like on average, I would say the shops I've gone to and the the GPs I've played at, what have you, I mean, I think 75% is kind of what you see for the most part that most people are playing. There's absolutely people coming in with pub stomp decks and there's absolutely the dude coming in with, all craw worm kind of decks, but Recky. for the most part, right? <laughs> Recky Strikamagawa, that <laughs> jump. But for the most part, I think people are playing seventy-five percent ish decks where they're consciously aware of their power level and trying to keep it under check. Yeah, power level is a pretty interesting conversation, but we are getting a little ahead of ourselves because I still want to get to know Mark better. Mark, now that you're in the commander format, oh, yeah. I want to know what kind of decks you're playing. I have four main ones that I'm playing right now. My baby is Azusa Lost But Seeking. Uh, she was the first deck that I made 
And the first deck that I foiled out, she was 100% foil in Japanese. Whatever couldn't be Japanese was just foil anyway, you know, foil cradles, tabernacle, workshop. You know, I was an idiot back then. So Azusa is, is first and foremost my baby. I have my competitive deck would be Psy Master Thopterist. It's a ton of fun. It's competitive, but it's not no combos or anything like that. No, you know, lattice, March of the Machines nonsense. So that's one of my favorites. I have uh, Eureka built, and that's an aggressive, fun ninja deck that I, I love playing, and it can go both ways, can be very competitive, can be sort of just like hokey and fun. And then uh, I have uh, Mizzix, which I, anytime I sit down with people, I have to tell them, I'm like, it is not that kind of, of Mizzix. Like, I will not be storming the table on turn four. Famous last words. Yeah, yeah. Everybody looks at me like, oh, yeah, I killed this idiot first. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm playing Sunbird's Invocation. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, no, no. We hear that all the time. He's going to metamorphose us, and he's going to storm off, and he's going to grape shot the table for a million. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just watch, I guess. This was fun. Well, yeah, and I just kind of wanted to know, since you had been talking about some commanders and like the ones released within the past couple of years, observing power creep within the format. So it's interesting to hear the list of commanders that you have, especially ones like Azusa, which are, you know, fairly old. Yeah, um, I know that she sort of gets pushed by the wayside now. I mean, you've got like uh, Titania, which is just super good and uh, just better options. But for me, I love what it does. I love that you can have sort of like an Eldrazi-centered strategy around it as opposed to something that's that's very contingent on lands entering from your graveyard. And uh, it's just a fun, big, stupid, enjoyable deck. Draws a lot of cards, plays big monsters, and uh, casts huge flashy spells like Praetor's Council. And it's very good. Like, I can beat a competitive pod with it, but I mostly play it because it's just very nostalgic for me. And it, you know, I've been in love with it for nine years now. So she's my baby. <laughs> That's pretty wonderful then. So kind of also cycling back to some of the discussions that you've had, especially I think these have come up in your articles. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at EDH and especially with, you know, the idea of there being a power creep within the format, you've got a list of cards. I think it might be a kind of a short list, but it is still a <laughs> list of cards that you, for lack of a better term, hate. Yeah, I mean, there are cards that, you know, when I read like Sheldon's articles and he talks about things that are like that they're looking at, but they don't know if they should get rid of. I mean, to me, it's pretty elementary. I think something like Cyclonic Rift is pretty much the worst thing for the format. Blue decks to get board back have to play it. A lot of cards like Aether Spout or Evacuation that are meant to combat creature centered strategies they don't see any play because why would you play those when you can just play the all encompassing answer? There's no way to have fun with it. I don't think it's enjoyable for anyone to have all their non-land permanents bounce. EDH is a format of fast mana, you know, of course, and having somebody end of turn overload a rift and then do three or four different things. It it just feels too game breaking a lot of the time. And I hate cards that there's really no fun way to use them. Like, is there ever a fun way to overload a Cyclonic Rift? Like, probably not. And uh, my other one is is uh, Paradox Engine. I hate it. I think that that's one of the worst cards for the format. Not just because, you know, it's not played in a ton of decks, but I know, you know, if you read something that would be done by, like, the Lab Maniacs, like, how many of the, how many of the decks start with the word Paradox in it? And to me, that just shows you like okay well if this card was gone like 
those decks would either have to adapt or they wouldn't exist anymore. And I think those two cards are very representative of going against the spirit of EDH, but also even in a competitive scene, like just being too good to exist. Some bold words. This can get to be a pretty dicey it can get to be a pretty dicey topic of conversation pretty quickly. Sometimes when we've had folks on, for example, uh, our former article editor, Henry Stukenborg, when he was on, something that was kind of interesting to hear was that despite you know his list of cards that he had gripes with, he actually would have leaned more towards unbanning cards than banning cards in the format. And so it's just interesting to hear this type of opinion where it's like, no, ban is definitely the solution. And I guess I'm also just kind of curious why you think that maybe a ban like that hasn't happened to the format thus far. I think the the rules committee themselves was a little bit cloistered before having, you know, this new blood sort of injected into it. They look at things from a very friendly perspective you know like i've been able to play games with a lot of these people in tampa that are sort of like the progenitors of the format and when they cast these spells it's never with overtly malicious intent or the follow-ups are never meant to just end the game right on the spot if somebody overloads a cyclonic rift their next turn might be a little bit more mundane just to sort of say like okay so and so's permanents are a little bit too risky for the you know, the spirit of the game, let's get rid of all those. Let's kind of start over and, and go from there. But now that they've brought in some other people who have, I don't want to say a more competitive viewpoint, but they do understand that that spectrum is a very vital component to EDH, that you might start to see some of those changes happening, you know, maybe creeping up a little bit, just strictly based off the fact that now, now that we're looking at the fact that, you know, semi-competitive EDH, I, I don't like to use competitive EDH as a litmus just because that is its own entity. But, you know, like we were talking about, a lot of stores, you've got those uh, mid to max optimized, you know, decks, dual lands, fetch lands that are, they're, they're meant to be good and they're meant to be played in a certain capacity. And I think some of the people that they added, they play in that capacity. So now they can start saying things like, well, listen, like the casual people, they're probably not like super interested in having all their permanents bounced. And the people in the competitive forum, everybody's playing blue because why wouldn't you want to overload a Cyclonic Rift? Like you mystical tutor for it, you cast it, next turn, you drop some mana rocks, you play your commander, pass. Everybody gets the button, the reset button hit, but you don't. And now you're so many miles ahead, it almost makes the rest of the game inconsequential. Well, Dana, Matt, the floor is yours. Thoughts? I mean, I think particularly Paradox Engine is a card that I absolutely detest, but it's for other reasons in addition to being super powerful. It's because it's a card that people can be so, so, so bad at using. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot to intend. Like, I have a tough thing to justify. Like, you can't ban a card because people are bad at it. That's not a way to reason to ban it, but like, that's a reason I hate it. I hate watching some dude sit there and struggle for six minutes in a game, untapping a bunch of stuff with Paradox Engine and not accomplishing anything. And people playing competitive decks aren't the ones doing that, but there's a lot of casual players in stores who would have been told to run Paradox Engine in their deck and jam it in there and spend an entire turn doing absolutely nothing but making me want to go slash your tires <laughs> so well, like i'll be right back i'm gonna slash your tires while you're right like I'll, sorry i gotta run to the bathroom while you're doing this i'll be back in too so yeah i'd like can you ban a card for that reason i don't know but i i detest it for that reason and, and i get the rift hate too I, i've seen a lot of rifts played in games where it's 
not an entirely unfair card. So again, I don't know. Like if I'm on the rules committee, do I ban Rift? I don't know if I can, if I can like justify it based on their criteria. But if somebody banned it, I would shed zero tears. I think that's probably my philosophy as well. I don't have I've, – I've seen a lot of vitriol towards the rules committee in a lot of different online forums and whatnot. I don't have nearly that same level of like angst toward it or, or anything like that. And even when I'm saying that, it probably like miscategorizes the actual – you know, the, the points that people in those communities are bringing up. But you know, I think that that particular group of people probably has more judging experience in magic than any other group of people on the planet. So I mean there's there's a lot of merit going into that. I think that Rift is annoying, but I'm, I don't know. I feel like I've also adjusted to it. So maybe that's just that there. But I also, when I look at the ban list as it currently is, I don't have any problems. I totally agree with the stuff that's on there. Well, I, I feel like to a degree, they are making some of these decisions based on thinking the best of people. And that might be based on their play group and who they play with. And their assumption is then, well, you know, the guys we play with are all cool. They're not going to like be doing super annoying stuff and they're just going to use Rift defensively as basically a better evacuation and the game continues and that's it. I think there's an element of that where they don't realize the way that a lot of people want to try to abuse anything they can abuse. Well, I will actually kind of challenge you on that because I think there's good reason if that is the attitude that a rules committee has, there's reason for them to do that. The data on EDHREC actually oh, sure. kind of supports that that attitude. We all saw Prime Speaker Vanifar, the birthing pod commander, and expected that one to get a whole lot of love. And it's actually the third most built commander from Ravnica Allegiance so far. There's a social implication happening within the format that does actually serve to police certain things as well. So if you know they're trusting people People, I think they've got good reason to. The data actually supports them doing that. Yeah, but it's still the third most built commander. Like if I'm only getting punched in testicles <laughs> as third of the often as I thought I was going to get punched in testicles, that's still getting punched in testicles an awful lot. <laughs> well, I didn't see that metaphor coming. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was special. All right, so let me turn the conversation on its head then. If there are some cards that you know we've expressed some dissatisfaction with, what about cards that are on the ban list? I voiced my opinion that I like the ban list as it currently is, and I also appreciate a cautious attitude towards you know adding things onto it. Are there any cards, Mark, for example, in your opinion, that maybe deserve to come off the ban list in lieu of some of the cards that you've named? Selfishly, I would say Rafellos. Wow, Man, that, card, that card was really good in my deck. You like mono green, don't you? Woo! No, you know what? There's a few things that I genuinely don't that I'm, I understand why they're on there, but something like Sundering Titan, I never thought that that card was super. Like in one-on-one play, obviously it's not terrible. In pod play, it can be very obnoxious, but I never thought it was like grotesquely overpowered. So that, that's one. And then Gifts Ungiven, I think uh, that one is I'm like sort of on the fence about. I think it's probably fine that it could come off. But other than that, I, I mean, most of the things on there, like I, I love Emrakul, but Lord knows <laughs> like that guy needs to stay on the ban list because looping it, not fun for the other person. Not fun at all. Yeah, I remember when my friends were really upset that Sylvan Primordial was banned and um that th- looping that not not good not a thing that you want people to be able I, to I do. I love Sylvan nah. Primordial, but I I know that card needs to be gone. <laughs> but prime time on the other hand. I also miss Prophet. Prophet of Kerfix was sweet. 
I don't miss that, and I have a Krufix deck. <laughs> like I that that was totally on the nose when that one was banned. I'm like, yeah, because that's the card that I got every single time, and it was showing yeah. up in like Ur Dragon lists and stuff. And honestly, even now, I see Seedborn Views taking up a lot of slots on a lot of decks too. And I'm like, oh, this ability is maybe really powerful. Uh, well, so yeah, I, I would say Profit is probably the argument for banning Rift. The the argument to a degree for Profit is. Any deck that could run profit was wrong to not run profit, and that's true of Rift. Like, there's no situation where you're you're mistaken running Cyclonic Rift. So I, I do think profit is a to a degree the argument to also ban Rift. Yeah, I, th- I think the the homogenization that Mark was talking about, like that. There, yeah, there are some cards that need to go that are in the profit slash Rift power level aura, whatever you want to refer to that as. I miss braids too. <laughs> oh, I do not miss braids. You, because no, I was playing not. Azusa, so like I would have like infinite permanence, and I like, play my braids, and I'm like, idiot. So this this has been a pretty weird discussion. <laughs> this this has been great. <laughs> well, so here's a thing: like when we invited Mark onto the show, one of the things that we did kind of want to discuss was power levels, and talking about banned cards is certainly one lens of that. But also, there's kind of a you know a, a thing to look at in terms of your playgroup and the cards that you're playing or the cards that your friends are playing as well. So it's not just the power level of cards, and I'll be very interested to see if any changes do occur now that the Commander Advisory Group has been formed. But also, the power levels of your playgroup of your cards that's also a, a pretty big topic among the community it's the entire reason why jason came up with the uh 75 theory for example and talking about banned cards kind of makes me wonder at what point can you guys tell if it's the player or the cards that they're playing if that makes any sense there's no mean decks there's only mean players like you you, you can okay so hot yeah, take well Go you, on. you can actively choose not to cast iconic rift like I, I was on Twitter earlier the uh, today or yesterday. I don't remember, but somebody was saying, yeah, I may have a card that's going to win me the game, but there's somebody that's playing their third commander game ever. And I want them to have a good experience and keep playing. So I just didn't win the game. I intentionally chose to make a, bl- make a bad play, if you will, but it was for the sake of having a good game, having an interactive game, making something memorable. Cause I mean, if I'm sure you guys remember the first game that you actually won, and you felt like you accomplished it. And I think having that kind of a mindset, I'm not saying you should throw games on purpose. That's not what I'm saying. But making decisions that are going to foster a good gameplay experience for everyone. Sure, you can overload that Cyclonic Rift. You can cast Triumph of the Hordes with your thousand tokens. Or you can just block or you can get rid of the Paradox Engine across the table so that everyone else can have a better experience and the game gets to play on. Or you can play it and just win the game and shuffle up against so you. Yes, there there are cards that are going to win games. There are cards that are very, very powerful, but you don't have to always use them to their maximum potency. You can choose, I guess, to, to play subpar. And I know some CDEDH players probably tell me I'm wrong, which that's fine. But you, you always control how you're going to cast the cards. Okay, so player instead of the cards on Matt's philosophy there. Mark, Dana, what are your thoughts? I actually agree, and it's something I practice a lot of my local stores. Uh, basically, I, I agree with pretty much everything that was that was said. You know, if I'm playing one of my good decks and there's somebody that's playing basically like a pre-con, I will hold back. And the reason for that is if you just go about putting a sour taste in everybody's mouth, they're not going to come back. 
And that hurts your play group. That hurts potential play groups. That hurts the store because commander is the lifeblood of magic, whether wizards, which they basically have acknowledged it. It is what keeps the machine going. And, you know, vendors, they love commander because in what other format could cards be worth 50 cents one day and then worth $20 the next. And Mm -hmm. It hurts LGSs, too, because that person, they win some commander games. Oh, cool. I won with my Yidris Precon. Well, go up and talk to the store owner. Hey, what cards are good in this deck? They go check the website. Oh, 60% of Yidris decks play this. Oh, I'm going to save up and buy this card. I mean, it's it's literally like a butterfly effect. If I trounce the bejesus out of a pot of three other players and, you know, I'm like, that's the break. Sorry, guys. I'm playing for five bucks. So, you know, uh you know, maybe get better decks. Like they're just going to be like, uh, forget this. Let's just play at home. And that doesn't help anybody. And I think the biggest issue that needs to be reconciled is, you know, if competitive EDH players or, you know, like the top echelon players that are playing, you know, their Teferi decks or um, their Selvala decks, or, or, you know, they're out there just trying to win on turn three. If they're out there doing that to new players, like shame on them. It's, it's not about being a good magic player at that point. It's about being a good magic player, like being a good f- friend or potential mentor, something like that. Yeah, I think you definitely want to be super careful with new players to make sure you don't, you know, just pub stomp them into the curve. But like for for myself personally, it's not really a huge problem. Like I, I'm not too worried for the most part about my, you know, Asperia, Sphinx Tribal deck just abusing somebody i'm not too worried about you know rest Reki history kamigawa all legends is a good deck and i win plenty of games with it but i never feel like i'm gonna blow out somebody in a way that they can't that, that they're gonna feel like they lost to a super souped up deck i don't think so most of my decks kind of fall into that category where i just I, it's not really a problem for me where i feel like i'm gonna blow anybody out and have to generally worry about it as for whether or not it's the cards or the player, that's super tricky. My Sphinx Tribal deck has a Tundra in it. That's a super expensive card, but like that's not why, if I'm winning with that deck, it's not because I had a Tundra. I've played plenty of pods. Uh, uh, last summer, I went over to Minneapolis, wound up playing in a shop with a bunch of people I didn't know, and I, I brought out my um, my Jeru Super Friends deck, because, you know, Mono White Super Friends, that's, that's definitely not a deck where I'm worried about blowing out complete strangers. And the first guy opens, like, Tundra into something, and the second person opens Volcanic Island into whatever, I, I forget. And, and my first thought was, oh, I've made a terrible mistake here. These guys are <laughs> clearly playing. And they had no idea how to handle DeGero Super Friends. Like, their decks were just awful. Like, one wound up, the, the Tundra one was Derevi Bird Tribal, and I don't think he had any removal spells. And the guy with the Volcanic Island, I can't remember what his commander was, but like neither of them had any idea how to deal with me playing a Johnny's that I was able to tutor up. So you can't tell. Like You just never know in this game, based on what cards are in someone's deck, how good of a deck builder or player they are. And that's an easy trap to fall into, to blame that loss on that dude who had the $300 dual land and that's not always the reason he won that well, game. Well, you still have to be able to play the play the decks. I mean, I can't count the times. Absolutely. And Mark, I'm sure you have probably more stories than I do. I'll sit down to play Modern or whatever, and the guy just copy and paste some deck list that won a GP, but he has no idea how to play it, and he just kind of fumbles around and, and yep. doesn't do anything, and you crush him even though you may not have drawn very well, but he just sat there and, and just 
bumbled around for 20 minutes. Oh, that happens quite a bit. Yeah, you, you still yeah you still have to play the game. Uh, there was an article I wrote a long time ago, not a long time ago, but about three years ago. It's called the antiquated effect, and it was about how players always seem to be a week behind. And if something wins an SCG Open, that's what they're copy and pasting for the next week, and they're not innovating their own technology into it or play testing it or uh, getting a firmer grip on. Okay, so this deck won. What's the deck that counters this deck? Okay, well, if I'm going to still play this deck, what can I tech in that helps it beat the matchup that is meant to beat this deck? And they're not they're not trying to get past that level of thinking where they're basically like, oh, I'm playing the deck with four crashes. This is the deck. This is the deck that won. And when they lose, they take it as like some sort of like personal indignation. You know, well, I don't understand how I lost. This is the, this deck was great last week. I don't understand. So instead of fostering that mentality that's meant to increase your ability as a player, they are just tunnel visioned on winning and winning with a deck that is a week or even maybe sometimes two weeks behind. And I think that's a detriment that a lot of players or grinders, or as I call them, like FNM store pros uh, <laughs> have is they, they can't get past that short sightedness. I think there's an important line to draw between winning and improving that you're kind of highlighting there. And that also kind of goes into a, another question that I have. There's all of the talk about spirit of the format or, you know, the social niceties of Commander uh, adjusting towards that. Matt, you had mentioned, you know, sort of the player, not the cards, that mentality. But I am kind of interested in, you know, the flip side of that. There are a lot of folks who play with a more competitive edge because it's their desire to improve and they may not realize the effect that they're having on a group that it's, you know, is of a more casual uh, setting or, or something like that. But the reason that they're playing a more tuned deck and at a more tuned clip is precisely because they want to make sure that they are constantly becoming a better player. Their desire is to improve their game and to always be able to, you know, have outs to every situation and things like that. How do you guys balance the desire to have a nice social game against your desire to improve as a player? So for me, I mean, I, and I've said this many times on the cast, I, I play modern, I play legacy to help tune my own abilities. I, my goal for playing commander is not to, to get better at the game. For me, it's, to have fun and, and not worry about making the right play all the time. So I'm probably a bad person to ask about this because I try to keep that competitive aspect of me enjoying the game separate from commander because I know there's, I would say a greater portion of people that don't care as much about winning. They just want to play the game. They want to enjoy it. They want to enjoy the experiences of it more. And those are the people that I just, I prefer to play commander with. If I want to worry about being right or wrong definitively, I, I turn to modern for that. I turn to legacy where it's a more common goal to try to win, to try to improve, to have correct deck building choices and all that. So for me, it's commander isn't about getting better so much, maybe knowing more about the format and, and maybe increasing your knowledge. But as far as, you know, increasing your gameplay skill, I, I'm of the camp that commander maybe isn't for that because I'm more of the social aspect fan of the format. Hmm. One of the things that I found kind of useful, just like as a, a practical example, I guess, when I'm looking to improve, that's actually the reason why I wanted to try out the group hug strategy, which, Dana, we know your opinions on group hug, but hear me Boo. out. 
but the reason that I built the Kaneos interior deck that I have is because it was a style I was completely unfamiliar with. And that struck me as not being as good as the rest of the decks that I was currently playing. And that was a deck building challenge that I then had to overcome. I was playing cards that were not specifically tuned. And in fact, I keep the deck looking very not tuned at all for precisely that reason so that it doesn't appear that I'm about to blow people out because I wanted to try and see whether I can actually make this work and whether I have the skill to overcome what I consider to be different barriers, things like that. So maybe tuning the deck wasn't always the answer or playing it in a, I don't know, I guess cruel manner, if that's a, a way to phrase it, but like actually just switching to a strategy I had no familiarity with to try and see if I could improve on a completely different axis. Yeah, and I think I think getting exposure to different strategies, that's that's great. And that's what we've said several times as well. That's what the, the website's for is if you're going into a completely unknown strategy, look it up on EDH right. Rec. We're, we'll give you a good starting point. It's not going to maybe be the best copy-paste deck because, like we just said, copy and pasting decks isn't always the best way to do it, but we'll give you a good push in the right direction. So I'll give you an example of that, Joey. This happened when I was playing last night, actually. There was a guy who missed his land drop in one of my pods on, I want to say, turn three. So he's sitting on two lands. And I think turn five rolled around, and I looked over and noticed he had missed his last cup. Like, he must have kept a two-lander, assuming he would be fine, and wasn't. So he's at two lands at that point, and I had, you know, ramped a land or two and had a few rocks out and then drawn a strip mine. I'm like, man, I have all the men in the world. The optimal play right now probably is to strip mine one of his lands so he's just a non-factor at that point in the rest of the game. But I'm not, I'm not going to do that in the game. Like, that's not how I, that's not what I'm there for. So I, I don't know if there's a necessarily a way to balance that. In my case, I've just resigned myself to that's not how I want to play, so I'm not going to do it. So if you're looking at things from like the optimal axis of the game, I, I, I just can't even attempt to do that because what an optimal play is is oftentimes just not what I want to do when I'm playing commanders. So I've just had to disregard that. If you're looking at things from like being a better player as in you know, missing mistakes and and trying to just generally play your turn and the things you do better. That's actually something I probably need to work on. I tend to be pretty sloppy just because I'm talking with people and BSing and and I, I missed way too much stuff because of that. So that's probably something I could stand to work on. I, I think that that's not the kind of thing that's going to negatively impact the people that are trying to have fun, whereas strip mining that dude's land is going to do that. So... I try to make sure the choices I make are things that aren't going to ruin someone else's game and or night. So there's kind of a weird effect. I'm not sure if I'm going to describe this very well, but I will certainly try my darndest. There's kind of a weird effect that I notice when people start talking about things like spirit of the format and, and you know, all of that. And it's sort of a trend that we've noted, especially when we take stock of the fact that people don't tend to attack very much in Commander. And on one point, there's certainly a strategic disadvantage to attacking when you are leaving yourself open to multiple other players. But I think there's a bit more going into it than that. There's also kind of this idea that everyone's sort of wanting, for lack of a better term, I know I keep saying that, but I'm all over my words today. It feels to me in some situations that everyone at a commander table kind of wants to play solitaire until the game ends. Is that a feeling that sort of resonates with you guys? It's just a a critical thing that I've I've noticed every so often. Like in, in my most critical moments when I'm kind of given the format some, some side eye, 
I do occasionally feel as though everyone's interested in not having their strategy disturbed ever, and then they sort of use that as an excuse when, you know, someone exiles their graveyard or counters their commander, for example. They use that as an excuse, or they point to that as being something that was not fun, when actually it was interaction, and interaction is quite literally what the entire game is built on. You know, preventing an opponent from completing their strategy is exactly what happens in 1v1 games. People will attack each other to prevent the other person from overwhelming them with all of the resources. Sources. Is any of this resonating with you guys? Because I feel as though when we talk about things like the spirit of the format, it's important to take a critical look at the people who, who raise that concern as well, rather than just assuming that the social niceties is everything that Commander's about. I feel like it's almost like the format means different things to different people, and the game itself means different things. Like some people just want to play Battle Cruiser, and that's fine. That's what they want, and and I'm not saying they're wrong. It's the same way that you know somebody wants to play Standard and go on the PT. I mean, that's not wrong either. That's, that's their goal for it. So I, it's really hard for me to say what somebody wants is wrong. Just maybe how they communicate it to others might be the, the part that's lacking. I'm struggling to have a specific example pop up in my head here. But like, you know, you'll hear a politician say, people today are doing this thing. And then you'll hear some other politician repeat the same thing. And they're discussing this this thing that the people do or the kids do or their voters do or what have you and it kind of seems to you that that's not at all true it's this accepted reality that they keep repeating that doesn't seem to have any bearing on the actual voters out there i kind of get that vibe about the thing about people not liking to attack and people not liking when anyone disrupts their stuff i hear a lot of content creators and whether it's people on twitter or people who have podcasts or youtube shows make that comment and i feel like they've just all convinced themselves because the two dudes they play with play that way that's how it is out of the world at large because it that's never been my observation in any of the places I've gone to. I've never got the feeling that combat is something that people avoid. And I've almost never got the feeling that people get upset when you assassin's trophy away their doubling season. I, I've, yes, occasionally some dude gets salty because they get their things removed. And occasionally I'm sure there's metas out there where everyone's just trying to goldfish into a combo. I think that accept, the accepted knowledge that that's just a thing that happens and that's how EDH works, I don't think is accurate. I think that's something that people like to tell themselves when they pontificate the state of the game, and I don't think it's true for the vast majority of players. I appreciate you guys putting me in my place. <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> All right, so let's talk one more practical thing on this power levels discussion. Dana, you brought up an example where... You had the mono-white Jero deck, and then the first couple of opponents played dual land, and then dual land, and it was like, uh-oh, this could be very scary. It turned out that, you know, you had mentioned in that example that those players weren't quite as, you know, tuned as you had expected based off of the first couple of plays. But let's imagine that they are. Just for a hypothetical situation, you know, we can talk about communicating your power levels before the game actually starts and things like that. But what happens when you're actually in the game and you realize, wait, I'm at a completely different power balance with the rest of the table than I thought I was at the beginning of this game? What do you do then? Are there any solutions? Is there a practical thing that people can do? Mark, I'm going to throw this one to you because it's been nine years since you've said anything. Hey, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just enjoying listening. Um, I think with this kind of question, if I am in a fun pod, if I am, well, you know, like you were saying, if I just show up at a store and I'm like, hey, everybody, let's, let's play some Commander. And 
you know, I ask ahead of time, I'm like, are we serious? Or are we fun? And then they're like, ah, just pick a deck or whatever. And they start playing like dual land mana crypt on turn one, play another spell. That's when my focus just becomes, oh man, I'm going to screw with these guys as much as I can. Cause Lord knows I'm not winning this game, but I'm going to do everything I can to just ruin their, <laughs> ruin their game plan. And maybe I can creep into the game, but I'll cause some havoc or something. But if I get into a pod and, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this, like you go into a, like a GP pod, you know, you pay 10 bucks or whatever to get into it. I'm not going to sit there and be like, are we playing for fun guys? And I'm not going to be that guy that gets indignant when my opponent, you know, blisters me on turn two. Just reason being, when you introduce money, prizes, blah, 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 in a, in a quote unquote competitive setting, like, you know, like a GP where there's prize ball tickets at stake, you know, I, I don't think you can get really mad in that situation. But when it comes to like actual getting, you know, fussy about it or not really being happy about what's going on in the game. Like when I'm like planes go and the guys like turned one mana barbs and I'm like, Oh, oh spaghetti. like, I think you just have to temper your expectations going into a game. And if you're, if the table is just indifferent to what everybody's playing and some guys playing just so he can murder everybody very quickly, some people are playing because they want to resolve warp world and watch the world burn. I think you sort of just have to check your own emotional state with what you're getting into. But for me, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to path this guy's creature. Uh, I'm going to do everything humanly possible to ruin this guy's day. You know, it, I just, I just try to have fun with it at that point because I'm like, they, these guys are playing, they're playing in the pros and I'm playing like double a baseball right now. Yeah. You, you kind of summed up what I, I tend to do. If I'm, even if my decks I, I try to keep fairly casual, I'll put some powerful interactions in there just so I can kind of play a little equalizer game. But if it's if it's a deck that I just know I'm going to get outclassed, I'll kind of... A few times I have picked somebody at the table that I'm going to help win because there's no way I'm going to beat this Yasova Dragon Cop person that's just playing CEDH level with Flusterstorms and Forces and all sorts of powerful crap. But I'll help, you know, this person over there that's playing his Azuri really bad elves deck. Um, I might help him win and elevate his game a little bit because maybe with our our powers combined, we'll Captain Planet the table. So, Dana, how about you? Um, I think for starters, I, I tend to err on the side of playing a weaker deck. I would rather be the person who sits there getting just stomped on for the 20 minutes before the game is over than I would be the person who's doing the stomping. So when in doubt... I think that's generally good advice anyway, is err on the side of picking a weaker deck and then adjust up is way easier than adjusting down. It is a struggle to not be salty, though, particularly if people aren't honest about their power level. I mean, I usually am successful at smiling and nodding and getting through the game, but like I've had people straight up lie about what their deck is. Oh, this is a Yidris precon. I'm just, I haven't hardly tweaked it at all. And, you know, they open with a, a duel into a divining top into something else. Like, I've been lied to about power levels before. People were looking to stomp. And that's a tough time. I really have struggled then not being a jerk back and just, like, biding my time. But, I mean, all you, that's all you can do. Like, there's no upside to being a sore loser in that situation. All you can do is kind of go to the next pod or then bust out your strong deck and just follow them around from pod to pod, knocking them out of game after game after game, <laughs> which is something I've done before, yeah, too. Spite of I mean, you got to look at that person, though. Like, I, when I was younger, I would get, like, super mad about that stuff because I was very competitive. And, 
my identity was sort of wrapped up in magic. If I wasn't winning at magic, I was losing at life. And, you know, I've been in one of those pods where, you know, the guy's like, oh, I'm not going to cut your deck. Huh? It's just a friendly thing. Like, you know, who's going to cheat? And the guy's playing Prosh and he's like, turn one food chain. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, cool, man. Like, I'm sure I should have cut your deck. But I try to remember, like, what does that say about them as a person? Like their identity, their self-worth, their feelings are wrapped in magic, like their validation. Like this guy that, that you know, that lied to you about a Yidris deck, like who is he impressing? Like who, who's right. going to be like, whoa, man, this guy, did you see this? Like you're like slapping him on the back, like he pulled one over on us. Like nobody cares. Like it's like you're that much in need of some sort of pleasure or, you know, oh, I got one over on them. Like it's, it's not, it doesn't make you a better player. It doesn't make you a better person. Certainly doesn't. And you know, like how many times have you been in pods where like the guy combos on turn three and everybody looks at each other and they're like, okay, cool. So let's just play a, a three person pod. Like that, the dude that does that is, is the loneliest person in the room. You know, with that guy going around or the, those two people that go around to 30 pods over a GP weekend and they're like, oh yeah, we sure showed them. It's like, okay, you guys spent 20 bucks total on $15 worth of prize. Like you're, you're not playing spoiler. You're not like ruining anybody's day. They're just like, oh wow, that guy's uh, really intense. Just like camping, like uh, good for him. Like, well, And you get a reputation and it's tough to shake if you're that guy too. Oh yeah. People know. You win that pod and that's great. And then you're forever kind of that person. Yeah, you you especially see that at, you know, like at the GP or the SCG, you know, on the the commander tables. By like midday Friday, we're like, oh yeah, this guy was the other pod. By the way, he's playing uh, Teferi, and he's like, oh no, no, no. And then like that's when like I break out like Selvala hate bears, and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Well, you're just not going to get to play Magic with us then. Like I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that your day is ruined, and I'll have fun with everybody else. Like when you're gone, like all of a sudden my deck becomes group hug. And we're just enjoying ourselves. And I think that's where the disconnect that a lot of people get when they feel, you know, salt, as, as, as we're calling it, is that I'm not trying to examine it as a magic player anymore. I'm trying to examine it as a person looking at a very pitiful excuse for a person. It's aggressive. I love it. We're getting into some harsh language, not going to lie, for bleeding heart <laughs> people like me, seeing the person who's way more competitive than me or who maybe lies about a Yidris deck, for example, something like that. Like, you know, I'm I'm not like, oh, I have to assume that they're an absolutely terrible person like that. I don't want to immediately take that route. I think what it comes back to for me is, again, being observant of that line between winning and improving. And I think that's the lesson really to take away there. When you do encounter something like that, just like bearing in mind, like it doesn't make me feel better if I think that someone else is a worse human being because of the way that they enacted a commander game. That doesn't assist me in any way, but it does help me to maybe have a, you know, some type of communication with that person about that line, about how winning does not necessarily make you a better player. Because in my experience, the people that I encounter who play more competitive decks always tell me that the thing that they're after is to improve. And one of the ways that you can, you know, measure whether you're improving is by winning, but it's not the only way and it's not always correct either. And so that's just a thing that I kind of want to bring it back down to, because I think that that's a very important lesson for sure. No, you're, you're totally right. And I, and I, I will retract what I, I think I said it in a, like you said, a little bit too harsh of a manner. Like I, I try to look at that as a, 
yeah, you want to improve, but you know, there are some people that are kind of snide about it. And there's some people that kind of, you know, bend the rules a little bit, but for the person that like they win and they're like, Hey guys, good game. I'm sorry. Like, that's just what my deck does. I'm like, that ain't no problem, man. But you know, when it's like the conniving, you know, Oh, I'm just playing a precon. You guys should play your fun decks too. And then they like brain the table. Um, though that's where I'm like, that's like, I, what, what I meant was I try not to look at that as like, Oh, this guy's slighting me in magic. I'm like, eh, you know, maybe this guy just needs a win or something. Like maybe they, maybe they just need that boost or something. I didn't mean to have it like a, um, well, we should burn this witch. Like guys get the higher <laughs> ready. Like we're setting them on fire. Like their legs, arms about to be charred. I just mean it more like maybe there's something else going on there where, you know, if you've got to lie to people about what you're playing, just so you can beat a $5 table. I mean, it's, to me at that point, I'm just like, okay, man, like you wanted it more than I did. See, for me, it, it it's communicating what, what you, you know, the, maybe your mood is maybe, cause I know I've sat down at a table with some buddies and I've had a crappy day. I, I just needed a little pick me up. And I said, guys, I'm going to, we used to call them slump busters as my, my early super powerful Rafik deck or my uh, Narset deck We was my slump buster. And my buddy has a Mizzix deck that's his or a Carador deck or whatever it was. It was just that super powerful deck that we just wanted to bump uglies and just ranch the table, get it out of our system. They're like, okay, thanks for indulging me in that. It's out of my system. Now let's, let's have fun. Uh, I've definitely done that before, but it, the big thing, like you said, it's not, we're just sitting down and just busting it out without warning. It's, Hey, I'm going to play this deck. I just feel like doing something big and powerful just communicating that I think is going to get rid of 99% of that ill will that you might generate at a GP or just at your, your LGS, whatever it is. Friend of mine told me a story about a guy that he knew when he was playing in a group in Pullman. And this is, this has stuck with me. I thought it was really, really cool. This person that he met had 10 decks and he had rated their power levels, each one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. And he would ask the other people, what number they would like to play against. And I thought that that was just pretty novel. I think that's kind of neat. When you have that type of numbering system and they're each at what you deem to be a different level, that can help gauge things pretty well too. I like that. Alrighty, fellas, there's another kind of subject that I wanted to get into really quick because Mark has some tournament experience and Matt, this also is pretty connected to you as well because you have announced, you know, that you're a pretty competitive player in the 60 card formats. But I kind of wanted to pick your guys' brains about any lessons that you would take from competitive 1v1 magic that apply to Commander. The Probably the biggest one that I, I had to take from the competitive scene would, would be to just listen. And every magic player wants to be the best player in the room. They want to be the most knowledgeable, the most interesting, the one that when you sit down at the table, everybody kind of gathers around you. They like interact with you. They want to hear your viewpoints. And that feeling becomes intoxicating at a certain level, especially like at a local level where it's a very small pond and you are the big fish. When it comes to EDH, I think we get so caught up in, in cookie cutter or like you guys mentioned earlier, like copy and paste builds that it's very difficult to just go like, Oh, well, this card is definitely worse than, than this. Like, why would I ever play, you know, card a, when clearly I should be playing card B. Well, if a group of people are telling you like, Hey, well, why don't you try this out? This might be really interesting in your deck. They're coming from a place where they want you to have more fun playing magic, or they want your deck to be maybe more optimized, or maybe they played it before and they have some really cool insights to it. 
And I think shrugging off the overtly, like, I got to crush these people, you know, like I, it's, it's best of three. If I don't win, I'm going to be wasting money, wasting time. I, I think what really separates commander and gives it that like awesome little aura to it is that you can listen to your friends and forums and websites and just, you can be a knowledge pool and your deck is your own for as long as you want it to be. So listening to me, to better players, to articles, to podcasts, that all will help you become a better, not just player in general, but definitely a, a better commander player that enjoys it a lot more. I knew there was a heart under there. I hate it. <laughs> like with all my heart. I, I'm going to echo what Mark said. Uh, I have learned more by listening to people better than me than by trying to be right. Yeah, the second that you think that you are right, you're probably wrong. There's always something more to learn. And, and if you're trying to get better as a player, finding all the resources available and, and you can go to Twitter and sure, some some of the pros might joke and have their personality show like, oh, well, of course I'm the best player. But like, if you know them, you know that they're joking because the best players that I've come across admit that they ask for help more than they, they have a chance to. I have a couple buddies who've been on many pro tours. One works at Wizards of the Coast now, and uh, we were playing the same deck for a little bit. And I was like, man, I, I really like this, but how, what am I doing wrong? And just asking for help. That's the biggest thing. And, and don't try to do everything yourself. Just reach out, ask your buddies. We talked about this last week and ask your buddies, Hey, play this deck. What is it missing? Uh, what is good? What is bad feedback? A lot of people, they, they kind of think it's criticism, but it can be constructive criticism. So just reaching out and just asking for help, I think is the biggest flaw that people inherit as magic players. Cause they're so, like, like Mark said, they're so bent on being right. There's players that at every shop that I've been to that, you know, they want to be the, the store end boss, if you will, those people, they don't ask for help and they, they plateau and they don't get any better. Whereas the people that ask for help, go to different places, have different experiences. Those are the people that keep getting better. So just not being afraid to ask for feedback and, and take it with a grain of salt, obviously. But yeah, don't don't be afraid to to hear other opinions and, and give them weight. I really like those. I've got two kind of that I'm actually stealing from the podcast Limited Resources with Marshall Sutcliffe and now LSV. Man, they've got such good advice. But I think that these definitely apply to a commander and not just to 1v1 formats. One of the terms that they've got over there on LR is results-oriented thinking. Boiled down, it basically just means that like, oh, I played a card and then it helped me win the game, therefore I made the right play. And that's a very dangerous mentality because as soon as you start thinking that, you know, when this happened, I mean, human brains are wired to make those causal relationships like and, you know, wire those synapses so that you think that, oh, therefore I should do it again. But that's not always true. It's very possible it's in fact quite likely that sometimes you'll make the wrong play, but you'll still win. And even worse, you'll make the right play, but lose. But that can totally be true. There's a Star Trek quote, I think, somewhere that you can do all of the right things and still lose. But that doesn't, you know, if you lose a game, you'll just immediately feel like, ah, I did the wrong thing. But that isn't always true. So like making sure that when you're in a game as big as Commander, that you're paying attention to like the actual effects of the stuff that you're playing and not just the results but like the actual decision-making process when you play those cards, that's really important. And I definitely think that people should transport that from the 1v1 formats over to Commander as well. But I've got one more. One more that I think is a bit more 
important when it comes to <laughs> commander and again this is something that they've touched on in lr but it definitely matters for commander players and that's simply having a plan commander allows us to i kind of mentioned solitaire earlier we can dirtle ourselves for a whole ton of value and that's less likely to happen in 1v1 formats. It certainly can, but a 1v1 format, like in a deck like that, if you're playing Burn or you're playing White Weenie or anything like that, likely your deck has a plan. You know to like, you know, hit these particular beats to take out the other person. But in Commander, someone might build a Muldrotha deck or a Rune deck and be so obsessed with value that they forget to actually find a way to close the game. And man, that's painstaking. So I think that that's a really good lesson to take from competitive players is to know what your deck is supposed to do and how it's going to win and to then make it do that instead of just wasting everyone's time with a bunch of dirtle. That's yeah. a good one, Joey. Uh, the, one, <laughs> the one I will throw out there, and I, I see this in my friends that, that play competitively, is they, they do reps. You know, I'm going to play this modern deck and I need to make sure I play it against, you know, burn X amount of time. So, so I know how to play against burn, what the tempo is, what to do against burn. And then I need to play it against this mid-range deck X amount of time so I can get a, you know, a feel for that. So like I see those guys do that. That's not something in EDH you really can do. You can't say, okay, now I'm going to play against, you know, this Aurelia deck X amount of times. That's not something that you can do to improve your game. What you can do though is kind of do the mental equivalent of that when you're playing a game. And particularly when it comes to addressing things you're bad at, so say, for example, if you tend to overextend, you can start a game and just mentally say, okay, this game I am going to focus on making sure I don't overextend. I'm going to intentionally not put as many creatures in play as Impulse tells me to do, and I'm going to work on doing that one thing for the next three games to try to teach myself some good habits. Or, hey, I'm bad at paying attention to the person across the table from me because I get distracted by my phone or what have you. So tonight, all the games I play, my main focus is going to be to pay attention to what that person's doing and try to figure out what their game plan is and anticipate what their next move is. So you could do that stuff all in your head as you're playing. It's kind of the equivalent of playing those reps against other games. You can kind of do homework as a player. We've talked about homework cards before, but like you can do homework activities while you're playing Commander, particularly if you're getting blown out. Like we've played those games where like you have bad draws or you get mana flooded or mana screwed or what have you and you're not in the game. Well, that's a perfect time to work on something. You might as well use that time productively while you're sitting there and, you know, pick something that you can kind of homework out and try to take advantage of your time. That's really nice, Dana. I like that, too. Before we move on to challenge the stats, I'm seeing that one of you has written down a, a quote from Twitter. Was this a quote from Mark? Yep. Show okay. us. Regale us <laughs> with your tweet. With your tweet. Uh, you know, there is a heart under there. Like, basically what I talked about was how leaving the competitive scene in Magic was the best thing, like the most liberating, but it was also the most imprisoning life change that I've ever made. And sort of like the understanding behind that is that when you leave competitive Magic, you're, leave, you're, you're Atlas. You're taking the weight of the world off of your shoulders. You're no longer beholden to tournament results. You're no longer as good as your last finish or as important as your last article was received, you just become yourself again. You get to go to pre-releases. You get to go to, you know, in my LGS, Tuesday night commander, um, drafts on Saturday. That's it. Like you get to just enjoy magic for what makes magic magic. You know, the, the saying has always been the worst part about magic is playing magic. 
you get, you know, you get to enjoy the company of those that are around you. But the flip side to that is, you know, the imprisonment part is that you lose so much of that connection with people that you've met over the years through traveling. And, you know, Florida is sort of like notorious for the competitive community down here. Like when you used to play at our PTQs, you were playing against like uh, John Cuvier, you were playing against uh, Steve Mann, you were playing against Brennan DeCandio, you're playing against, you know, Chris Finnell in your money draft. Like you're, you're playing against Pro Tour staples, just some of the best players in the United States, you know, Logan Mize, all sorts of these incredible uh, end bosses. And you build these relationships with them. You travel with them. You go across the country with them. And when you leave that lifestyle, it becomes very isolating because, you know, we all grow up and I'm sure you guys, you know, who've been playing forever, you know, that you, when you're 20, 22, 25 years old, you're, you're, you can do whatever you want. Like you can go anywhere, do anything. But, you know, my wife and I, you know, we had a baby. And so I had to walk away from competitive magic and you're like, yeah, my God, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. But there's always that part of you, that side of you that's like, oh my God, I miss, hey, it's Saturday. I'm off Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm going to a PTQ. We're going to stay in Orlando. We're going to go to dinner. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, uh, you know, so for those of you that are on the decline of being a, a, a grinder or, a, a, you know, like a tournament standout, uh, get ready for that. It's the, it's the malaise. It's like when you get home from vacation, you're like, Oh my God, this sucks. Like back to work. My life's awful. You know, the high is gone. So you have to start taking value in what you have and finding your peace in your, you know, your catharsis and other things instead of wrapping up who you are in magic. Wow. Taking me on a bummer. Dude, it's great. My son's friggin' awesome. The kid, like, <laughs> dude, I sing the Elmo song when I'm at work. I like walk up to people. I'm like, you know, it's Elmo's world. Like, I just, you know, it's it's the best thing ever. But man, it, like that, you do miss like that that friggin' Leonard Skinner Freebird mentality of just being on the road and, you know, man, sarcasm and tear jerking. This podcast has everything now. At, at this point, I, I don't understand how I'm not a, a co-host on it, but I, I guess it's fine. You know, I'll just go back to being a dad, I guess. Maybe we'll have you and Matt lip-sync for your life to see which one of you gets to Shantae you stay. I'll take him out. I'll take him out. Wait, I'll, I'll, I'll pull Tanya Oh, my goodness. Okay, let's move on now to our final segment, and that's going to be Challenge the Stats. We're going to take a look at some cards that we think are seeing maybe too much play, according to the statistics on EDHREC, or too little play, according to the statistics on EDHREC. All right, my card this week is Abjure. It is a one-mana counterspell, single blue, sacrifice a blue permanent, and counter-target spell. It's an 815 decks in EDH rec, and you're not going to want to run that in any old counterspell deck out there, but if you're playing someone like Talrand, where you are going to make a Drake to replace the one that you just sacrificed to cast your one-mana hard counterspell, or if you're playing something like Edric's Five Master of Trest, where you have eight different variants and flying men currently in play, and you can easily afford to lose one of them, to counter that Wrath of God that would have wiped your board. I think it's a really good counterspell in selected decks that can take advantage of not really caring if you lose one blue permanent in exchange for a one mana hard counter. And I think it should be in more decks than the 815 it's in currently on EDH rec. 
Those are very keen picks for it too, because things like Talrand and especially Edric are so low to the ground that you can't afford to have very costly counter spells. And there's even things like like Locust God, where you're you know routinely mm. spitting out plenty of blue tokens that you can easily sacrifice up, or something like it's in I think twenty Derevi decks right now. Um, but Derevi, if you worst case need to sacrifice Derevi to then recast her for four mana, there's far worse things to have to give up to save your entire board state with a one mana counterspell. So yeah, it's it's a card I'm a fan of, and I think it should be in more decks. And it counters any spell, so it's not like a swarm There's sung situation. No restrictions on it at all. Yeah, more decks. Right. You're, you're basically sacrificing uh, possibly an immaterial permanent for tempo. So I, I definitely think more decks. Yeah, that's a very neat one. Alrighty, I'm going to go next. I'm looking at the commander Nikia of the Old Ways from Ravnica Allegiance. She's really darn cool, but she does not let you play non-creature spells while she's out. She does double your mana as an exchange, but that's a pretty hard restriction. Comically, it's led to one of the most fun EDH rec pages I think I've seen in a while because she does not have an instance section on her page at all. She does have a sorcery section, but there are only four cards in it, and you can probably guess one of them is Primal Surge, which is pretty hilarious. One of the things that I like about Nikia is that she's able to capitalize on activated abilities of your creatures because that kind of gets to be your version of casting spells since she doubles all of your mana. So finding good activated abilities is super important. One of the activated abilities that I think more Nikia decks should be taking advantage of is that found on Soul of New Phyrexia. Soul of Nuphorexia, six mana artifact creature avatar. It's got trample. It's a six, six. That does not matter as much as this part. Five mana and colon permanence you control gain indestructible until end of turn. This is a creature centric deck. You have a ton of extra mana. You will need to make sure that you can cast, quote, heroic interventions whenever you need. Granted, it won't give you hexproof, but it does protect your board. And that's definitely what you need when you're playing a deck that doesn't have any instance on its EDH rec page. So only showing up in 35% of decks? Nah, I think that Soul of New Phyrexia needs to show up in all the Nikia decks. It's that good. When you can double all your mana and then just give your stuff indestructible, totally, totally yeah, When it, it effectively costs two and a half mana, three mana, really. Right. Uh, yeah, that's such a powerful effect for, for three mana. Like, it's not quite... To fairy's protection, but it's it's a very similar effect that you need. It's good on its own too. Like you can just jam a soul of new Phyrexian. If nobody answers it, you're like, okay, I'm good. Yeah, it's a six six with trample. It's pretty good. I, Matt, I I concur. How about you? So mine is one that I recently discovered when I was going through a collection that I, I purchased a while ago. But this one seems absolutely sweet in anything plus one plus one counters themed. But it's especially good in Muldrotha. That's what I've been playing it in recently. But it's only in 401 decks total. And that card is Thought Gorger. So Thought Gorger is two black black for a 2-2 horror with trample. When it enters the battlefield, put a plus one plus one counter on it for each card in your hand. If you do, discard your hand. Then when Thought Gorger leaves the battlefield, draw a card for each plus one plus one counter on it. So Muldrotha has no problem recurring stuff from the graveyard. So that first ability is basically put a bunch of stuff in your second hand for Muldrotha, and then when they finally kill it, because it's a leave the battlefield effect, not a die, so if they exile it, you still get the trigger. You still get to draw cards. It's kind of like a toothy style effect where, you know, as, as big as it is, that's how much you're going to get rewarded later on. Its top commanders are you know, some commanders like Alicia, uh, the Mimeoplasm, Varols, but it's only in 401 decks total. Any black deck that wants plus one, plus one counters themes, or plus one, plus one counters in general, 
I think this is definitely worth a look. It makes sense that Alicia Who Smiles at Death is a top played commander because that's another commander that doesn't matter. If you discard a bunch of creatures that you can reanimate, then it's perfect. Um, it's You can reanimate it herself, but it's just a very powerful card. If you like things in your graveyard and you like plus one, plus one counters, this card definitely seems like something better than 401 decks total just because of the fact that you, you can load up your graveyard and then draw fistfuls of cards afterwards. That's a really... You've got some... You got to have some bravery for that card, I think. When I see discard my hand, yes, I know I'm a necromancer, but even me, when I see discard my hand, that can kind of get me on edge a little bit because if I'm in a position where I really need to hold on to one specific spell that revives some of my other creatures, I feel like I can't afford to. So I like, I usually prefer to have the, um, the, the cards that let me individually pick the cards that I want to discard. So you got some nerve playing Thought Gorder, but I do think you're right when you you know, get to cards like Muldrotha or Alesha, like, yeah, that seems the optimal place for it. Yeah, I mean, anything that cares about the graveyard, really, I mean, you probably could you know, make a, an argument for stuff like uh, Jared Golgari Lichlord to, to be fairly good in it. Just to, to, to counterpoint you, I guess, Joey, if you're worried about discarding your hand, you're also going to draw a new hand when it leaves the battlefield. Like, unless they time it perfectly and they kill it in response to the triggers and all that, which... And that's that's bound to happen with any card, though. Um, I think that there, there's a lot of potential to do some some pretty powerful stuff with this. Yeah, I, I think that's something I can definitely get on board with. It is a card that kind of makes me nervous, even despite all of the graveyard stuff that I love to do. But you're right that this one is brimming with untapped potential. Yeah, it's better than the 401 decks it's getting played. And I, I do think that we can all agree that I'm, I'm right on this one. As with, with most things. <laughs> I would like this card on fire. It's... Yeah, I would absolutely never play this card. Ever. Not once in my entire life. Well, that that's... I would throw this card in the trash. <laughs> I, I, wow. I, I, you know, I, I, I agree with Matt's points, but it's also something that I myself am never going to play. It's it's not my jam. It's too risky. But I, I agree that there's decks and people who play a certain way that would like it. I would put this card in a summoning circle, and I would sacrifice it to the dark lord and just let him take it to hell with him where it belongs. <laughs> I, I hate cards that like if you're not if you're at parity or you're behind you just can't play and this is one of those cards where you, the cards in your hand are probably more valuable if the table is like humming on all cylinders or everybody is sort of like at the same point in the game like you're not blowing the game open by doing this at all and I just think it presents an awkward scenario where like, if you're playing it, you're probably ahead. Like if you're playing Moldrotha and you play this, you're probably already in a great position to exploit it anyway. And your deck plays so many redundant ways to put things in your graveyard that I don't know if this is the, the answer for it. I mean, it's certainly like a, the design on it is friggin' insane. And I love the art. It's probably a gorgeous foil, but I don't think I would play this card, in, even in a fun version of Moldrotha. But that, you know, that's just me, guys. I'm sorry. It's what makes me. Why mean. do you hate fun? For the record, listeners, Mark is currently winning that lip sync. I mean, if this song, if this was a song, it would be Ashley Simpson. So yesterday, because it's it's so yesterday, <laughs> so yesterday. It's awful. All right, so we've got some opinions on Thought Gorger. I, I do like the potential on it. It could, you know, I I, I do. It's one of those cards that makes me want to experiment more with it. So I'm. Leaning a bit more towards Matt's side, sound like we're two for two on this. I think that there's some exploring to do with it, nonetheless. Uh, let's wrap up now, Mark, with your Challenge the Stats. Okay, so I am of the school of thought that while Read the Bones is an incredibly good card in black, I do not think it deserves 
15,632 slots index. Considering it, at least 50% of the decks that it is most played in are three color decks. And I understand the scry too being very good, but I think something like Painful Truths or Knight's Whisper, which is in actually almost half the amount of decks, but in almost all the same decks, if, if you, that makes sense. I think that a lot of these black decks are giving up equity and tempo and not playing something like a Knight's Whisper over Read the Bones. One mana cheaper, as we all know, is, it, is it's a huge difference, especially in a format that's very mana-hungry where you want to double, triple, quadruple spell as quickly as you can. And then in these three-color decks, if they're playing Read the Bones over something like a Painful Truth, they're just doing themselves a, a grotesque disservice. Because how many times you read the Bones, look at the top two, you're like, okay, I'll keep this. Or you keep one on top and you bottom one, and you draw your two cards. So you've, you've seen about the same amount of cards, but you've given yourself more of a disadvantage by not drawing that extra card. And I think in these three-color decks, drawing that extra card is so much more important you know, not even remotely close, then I'm actually looking up painful truth. I want to see how many decks this is it. 4,473 decks. It is in almost a fourth of the amount of decks that Read the Bones is in. I just think that's unacceptable. I hope it will please you to know that Painful Truths is a challenge that I've done in the past, wishing that that card got to see more play. That is one of my favorite draw spells for sure. What do you guys think about the challenge on Read the Bones, though? I myself, I, I will say this, the notion of an either or is foreign to me. I would just run Read the Bones and Painful Truths and Night's Whisper and Sign in Blood <laughs> and probably Harmonize if I was in green. So and, your life total is three, got yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> and, and, and Ambition's Cost and Ancient Craving. Like, as long as I'm at five life, I can afford to, I can afford to Read the Bones. I can afford to Ambition's Cost. You can win the game from to, five life. Two. That's all good. Yeah, as long as I got, if I'm at five, I've got four to spend on cards. <laughs> see, I respect I, that. See, I, I, I agree with Painful Truths being underplayed. But yeah, I, I think that Read the Bones, it's such a good just baseline card that I, I don't disagree with it being in that many decks as it is. But do you think because it's a common, do you think that's why it's in so I many decks? I think it's also because it's been in a lot of pre-cons too. Fair. I, th mm. I think there's a little bit of brainstorm at work in Read the Bones where it also kind of encourages people to think they're better than they are. No, no card plays, does that as much plays, as Brainstorm. <laughs> no, but it, you're right. But I think it does a little bit of that too where people like see it and think, oh, I'm going to make these really clever scry decisions that they don't ever actually wind up making for the most part. So I think there's a bit of an ego feed there for sure. Yeah, and as much as I want there to be more Knight's Whisper effects, it's the only one that I can think of. I'd love two mana to draw two cards every day. I'd run a bunch of those, but you run out of that pretty quick. And there's only one Painful Truths that I know of. So, like, definitely in the three-color decks, and that's definitely, I, I think, the point to hammer home here. If you're in a three-color deck, Painful Truths all the way. But if you're not, I think Read the Bones is a perfectly fine substitute. And there are plenty of decks that are running Read the Bones that aren't in three colors. I'm seeing Gaunti here. I'm seeing Mogus, God of Slaughter, that kind of thing. So, you know, there are certainly applications. I'm not as upset about it as, as Mark seems to be. I'm not upset... <laughs> You've been voted off the island is what oh, we're trying to say. I mean, I think it's a great card, but I think cost has a lot to do with it. I mean, the fact that it is a common, it's been printed, like you said, so many sets. I think it gets the the uh, the nod just because every black deck can play it. 
It has the same effect if you're three color, four color, five color, one color. So I think it's very good, but I do think that at 15,000 plus, I think that it's more of a, I'm supposed to play it, not a, should I play it? Right. And let me ask you this then, read the bones or signing blood? Which one do you prefer? Um, if I'm playing a, like Gonti, I would probably play uh sign and blood over it just strictly because I'm very curve oriented with these kinds of decks, you know, like on a turn two, I want to be playing something like a sign and blood turn three. I want to be playing something like a worn power stone or a, um, you know, like a coalition relic. So I can really start getting some, some heavy use out of Gonti on my turn five. I want to go into there with like turn, you know, like with like six mana, maybe six or seven mana. So that's that's like my philosophy with the card is I like to build a little bit more velocity towards a better Gonti. But if I'm playing like Edgar Markov, you know, or uh, Marchessa, then I'm, I'm probably playing Read the Bones. Wait, those are three color commanders. Didn't you say that Read the Bones shouldn't show up as much in three color decks? Well, that wasn't in the option. I, it was, are you playing Read the Bones or? <laughs> I, would play, I would play Painful over either of those cards. I think it's a must in three color black deck or three color black based decks. Or even, you know, four-color. Heck, I mean, we could, you know, if you're playing... Thalia. What's his name? Yeah, like, any, yeah, anything that's five-color. I mean, you're talking any way to draw three cards. You might be land-screwed in one way, but not another. We're easily drawing three cards with, with any, you know, amalgam of black plus two other colors. So Painful would be on my my top of, of those thresholds. But if it's a two-color deck... I'm I'm probably going to play Read the Bones over it, but I think Gonti, honestly, is in terms of being black-based or Erebos, I think those are just you, you know better decks than a lot of the, the red-black variants. Yeah, but making sure that you play your draw spells with intention, that's definitely a good lesson to take away from this conversation. Yeah, I would agree. Velocity. On that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Mark, let's start with you. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dynamo Nestico. Um, I'm close to a thousand followers, guys. So like, maybe you should get on there and follow me. Um, also, I'm on Facebook. If you hit a thousand mark, are you going to do anything special? Um, you know, there was some talk about something that uh, like pizza, you know, like maybe oh. I'm going to eat a pizza. But, uh, <laughs> cool. you know, like so that idea got shot down because nobody wanted to see that. Uh, sure. So like, I don't know, maybe a giveaway or something, or, you know, maybe a romantic night with pizza. Who knows? All right, Matt, where can folks find you? You can find me on the Twitters as well, uh, at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? I am on the Twitter birds, at Dana Roach, and you can hear me once a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Bettle, also known as Kenneth Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDH Rec and the cast on Facebook and Twitter. And you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. And you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast too. Mark, once again, I just want to thank you for coming onto the show. It was a real treat having you. Oh, you guys were awesome. I really appreciate it. Alrighty, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Dana, did you have to bring up the reserve list at the very end? Come on. <laughs> I mean, I, you, you asked! I thought you were chasing the dragon, baby. You're, like, you're like, does anyone have anything final controversial to say at the end of the show? And I was like, well, I didn't I mean, say controversial. Just, just yeah. me up, I guess. I, we, we've kind of got this thing going on now where we've learned that we could have cues, and I thought that was your cue. <laughs> See, I was going to be lighthearted and, like, ask who, like, the best retro wave band out there was. Like, 
be silly on the on the outgo. Yeah, but we already know the carpenter uh, is silly. Why would we even have that conversation? Listen to the song Obituary and then come back. It's great, I know. <laughs>